you know, and you have to be really careful as a musician not to just rip apart other genres. It's not sure. it's not a healthy thing to do. But now I really believe is not the time for Starbucks soundtracks. Yep. <laughs> yep. Now is the time for anger and passion and noise. Hello and welcome back to the Ear Fuel Podcast. As always, I'm Joel Freemark, and you can follow me on Twitter at at GetEarFuel and at the Daily Guru. The podcast is always available in the iTunes and Google Play stores under EarFuel and at GetEarFuel.com. What you heard at the top was a moment from my chat with the wonderfully talented Anna Coogan, and that interview is coming up in a bit. First up, though, the brand new album from Mark Lanigan hit shelves, so let's take a closer look at it. There are a few artists I look forward to new records from as much as Mark Lanigan, as whatever he does, it's guaranteed to both be completely unique and outright captivating due to the way he constructs songs as well as his voice. For those somehow unfamiliar, Mark Lanigan fronted the band Screaming Trees for their 25-year existence, and that band remains one of the most important in the development of the so-called grunge sound. You might also know him from appearances with Queens of the Stone Age, Mad Season, Moby, Mike Watt, and many other places. And his voice, well, that gravel is truly one of a kind. His solo work has largely been explorations into darkness from various angles, and his 2012 album, Blues Funeral, was far and away one of the best releases of that year. So the new record, Gargoyle, opens with, well, a ton of sound. I mean, this record just slams into you full force with a barrage of guitars, electronic sequences, rhythms, just all of this sound. While this strong presence of electronic instrumentation is a bit out of the ordinary for Mark Lanigan, it's really damn good. But one caveat before I go further. This is the sort of record you're going to need to spin a few times before it really hits you and kind of coalesces. The songs need to simmer in your brain, and you really need to take in the entire record to really help it make sense, and once you do, there's tons to dig from beginning to end. To me, this album is all about feel, and it feels really good. It's got a dark, often gothic tone running throughout, but that doesn't mean it's all slow and somber, which is one of those tricks that Mark's been able to deploy masterfully throughout his career. Songs like Nocturne and First Day of Winter present both sides of that cold, desolate coin, but there are other songs like Drunk on Destruction and the opening song that have this futuristic, almost speedy pace to them that you can really get lost inside. But then there's the jangly groove of Emperor and the acoustic, beautifully sad Goodbye to Beauty. That, that actually might be my favorite pairing on the album. There's just so much sonic range across the tracks that, well... Mark seems to excel at doing exactly what you don't think he's going to do, and I think that's one of the reasons I love all of his records. The other unexpected element of Gargoyle is that there are a few moments of what seem to be brightness. Both Beehive and the exceptional closing track, Old Swan, they have this bit of lift and levity in them, and with the placement of the words on the ladder, Gargoyle may very well be the closing of a chapter in Mark Lanigan's life. I don't want to say Mark's voice sounds better than ever, but, well, maybe maybe he's just managing to find new ways to express his words all of these decades into performing. I in no way mean that his older records are diminished, but 
I just couldn't get past the feeling that this is a transitionary record and almost a teaser of what's to come. In the end, while Gargoyle may not be the very best record Mark Lanigan has ever released, it's certainly a damn good one and well worth many listens. If you find yourself digging the feeling, but maybe not these songs in particular, go grab Blue's Funeral and use that as more of an introduction. For me, this is a record I am very happy to have in my collection, and now I get to eagerly await whatever the man has in store next. Before we get to the interview, I have a new segment this week that I'm simply calling Storytime! And for the inaugural installment, I'm going to tell you a story that takes us back to the early morning of May 2nd, 1968. It begins in a basement of the building at 301 West 46th Street in New York City. At the time, that basement was a club, and it was simply called The Scene. Over its lifetime, everyone from Sammy Davis Jr. to Pink Floyd to The Doors played at the club, as did one James Marshall Hendricks. His friends called him Jimmy. Jimmy had been in town for a few weeks working at the Record Plant Studio, recording what would become his magnificent Electric Ladyland album. During that time, the band would regularly visit clubs around the city, and they'd jam with the performers from time to time. That evening, Hendricks did in fact jam with a few other names at the scene, and then he invited about two dozen people back to the studio to hang out. Legend says that this, the whole inviting people back to the studio, it was a regular practice, and Jimi Hendrix-experienced bass player Noel Redding was not a fan of the idea. So much so that on the evening in question, he went home angry and missed out on the moment that's about to unfold. So, the group heads back to the record plant, and among them, bassist Jack Cassidy, who was playing in Jefferson Airplane at the time, and Steve Winwood played keys for Traffic and Blind Faith, and, I mean, it's Steve Winwood. You know the guy, right? Right. Add to this duo, Jimi Hendrix on guitar, and experienced drummer Mitch Mitchell, and the remainder of the people sort of sat around the studio watching. I think you've got all the image you need, and, oh yeah, it's also at about 7.30 in the morning, and they've been up partying all night. A lot of us know that feeling. You know what, actually, there is one more relevant person to the story. Engineer and producer extraordinaire Eddie Kramer. Along with engineering the entire Hendrix catalog, he did the same job for four Led Zeppelin albums, two Traffic Records, Curtis Mayfield's live album, Frampton Comes Alive. I mean, the guy is a legend, and he was at the mixing console for this impromptu jam session. With the musicians in place, the genius that the world now knows as the song Voodoo Child was basically done in a single take, sort of. As Steve Winwood later said, quote, There were no chord sheets, no nothing. Hendrix just started playing. The song itself is based heavily in the blues, and throughout the 15-minute runtime, you can actually hear Jimmy advising Winwood on some chords here and there. So the first take they did was basically Jimmy showing the others the song that he had in his head, while the engineers adjusted the various amps and equipment. And at the start of the second take, Hendrix broke a string. But the third take, oh, the third take was magic. And it was actually placed onto the Electric Ladyland album, unedited. What you hear is exactly what happened that morning. Remember, these musicians hadn't played together before, and Jimmy had given them a rough generalization of the sounds in his head. I mean, this is really as much of a jam session as you can imagine, and yet the outcome is nothing short of legendary.
On many levels for me, this is Jimi Hendrix in top form. The impromptu band are completely locked in with one another, with Winwood pushing to the front a number of times for these fantastic solos. And Mitch Mitchell here, he shows just how well he can read Hendrix because he completely anticipates Hendrix's seemingly sudden changes in direction. Check that out. It's, it's fascinating to focus on. Jimmy himself absolutely slays it. Whether he's digging deep into his blues roots and schooling folks on the power of the notes you don't play, or if he's sliding into the background almost duetting with Winwood, or those moments when he absolutely rips a blistering solo, Voodoo Child is all you need to hear for anybody questioning Hendrix's place as one of, if not the greatest guitarist ever. This jam would take on a second life as the very well-known Voodoo Child Slight Return, which was recorded by the Jimi Hendrix Experience proper the next day, but it was just as much of an improv as the full original version. Voodoo Child remains to me one of the most magical and outright jaw-dropping moments in all of music history, and I mean, come on, it doesn't get much cooler than a jam session after partying all night. That's as rock and roll as it gets. Moving on. Using a word like eclectic or diverse doesn't really cover it when it comes to Anna Coogan. Bringing together elements of psychedelic and folk and rock and opera and country and pop and so many other styles all on one record make it unlike anything else you'll hear. Add to that the strong underlying messages. They're political, they're personal, they're social. They're just countless layers to peel back on the lonely cry of space and time which just hit shelves last week. But even in the midst of what is a very frustrating and difficult time, you cannot deny the presence of hope in these songs, and that, for me, is what really separates her from the pack. Oh, and she also releases all of her own music independently, which, I mean, come on, that's always awesome. Anyway, Anna and I sat down in the park last week to discuss her new album, touring, her past that stretches from opera houses to marine fisheries, and everything else in between. We're saying that you've lived in a lot of places and, and you've lived outside of the United States because you trained in Austria as a singer. Yeah, I went to um, Das Mozarteum, which is a, wow. yeah, I know. That's which real is a deal. That's a <laughs> real deal. It was the real deal. It's uh-huh. in Salzburg, Austria. And um, the, the hang up was the school was all in German and I did not speak German <laughs> when I arrived. So I, uh, I had to learn in a hurry. So what what brought you there? So your early passions then must have been in the more classical yeah. musical forms? Yeah, so I trained as an opera singer from when I was about 11. And it's wow. just kind of the thing that happened. It wasn't like I was I was pushed that way by my parents or anything. I just, I really loved to sing. Uh-huh. And I really just wanted to take voice lessons. And I'm not a Broadway singer. It's just not the gift that I was bestowed with. And so... Um, just each each subsequent teacher sort of pushed me further and further in that direction until I randomly stumbled into an audition at the University of Washington for this uh-huh. group voice class. And uh, the two teachers kind of looked at each other, and within a year I was in Austria. Wow. <laughs> so that was about as serendipitous as the rest yeah. of my life has not been. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. So when you were growing up, was there a lot of classical and opera in the house or from your always, parents? Always, yeah. I mean, every Saturday. Uh-huh. I think it was Texaco then, uh-huh. right? Now yeah. it's Toll Brothers. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. can't keep track. But it was, yeah, every Saturday we had the opera on and um, pretty much every moment in between there was some form of classical or opera or West Side Story or on. West Side. 
so so it was a very musical upbringing. Then. It really was, and neither of my parents are musicians, so it's they just really really love music, which is kind of neat. Just big fans, just and genuine fans. You just picked up on it. Yeah, That's I awesome. must have. So, you know, with, with the new record, then it begs the question, where did the rock and roll come in? <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a better question. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 as much as I loved um, being an opera singer, I also really chafed against the rules. There was a lot of rules. In, in Austria, there's a uh-huh. saying that man muss, and that means one, one must. Okay. And then there was sort of a long list of how one must be. Uh-huh. And I really <laughs> felt that. And I had wonderful teachers at the Mozarteum. I really mean no offense. Um, sure. But there's just a different, much different culture there at least there was 20 years ago and I just did not want to be told what to do so I left the Mozarteum and I moved back to Seattle and I actually started playing kind of bluegrass if okay. you can believe that which was another sort nice. of left turn sure um but but bluegrass wasn't I could always sort of feel it wasn't really my own heritage it wasn't really my history because mm-hmm. um, I'm a New Englander you know right. to the core so I just slowly started moving listening to a little bit more sort of um the sort of Mark Rebo crowd, and uh, nice. and then um, just started moving more and more in that direction. When I moved to Ithaca, mm-hmm. I um, I got some mentorship, a lot of mentorship from a guy named Johnny Dowd, um, and my drummer Willie, and a whole group of people there that just pushed me, pushed me, pushed me. Mm-hmm. So, so, so you kind of almost came into rock and roll well after the fact by accident. Oh, yes, way. very uncool. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, What's this rock and roll music? Yeah, wow. <laughs> this is neat. I mean, I was a little young for grunge, so I sure. sort of was at the tail end of grunge, and so I knew all my, you know, my STP and uh-huh. my Pearl Jam. Of course, I lived in Seattle. <laughs> right, so. hard not to. Yeah, I had to, I had to get down with that. Um, and I was a huge fan of, um, of the Beatles, and that kind of led me down certain certain um, wormholes mm-hmm. the, did some Pink Floyd in my younger years and everything but, it but really it's only it does, it does happen <laughs> you know there was get the lead out on the school bus sure. every day at 4 o'clock in oh, Vermont yeah. so oh um, yeah but I didn't really start kind of getting into playing it until maybe the last five or six years so, so then it's been very recent since you you know have been on stage doing that style doing this style yeah mm-hmm. for a long time i was touring as kind of a americana folk artist mm-hmm. and and that had its place but i just kind of woke up one morning and thought up it's not it's okay not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not quite <laughs> me anymore i gotta i gotta do this yeah i yeah. had my my eight-year-old cousin came up to me after a show and he goes that's not you. <laughs> so, the best that. critic there is because oh, he's, he's honest. He was super honest. He has no angle. Yeah, no. Nice. So did you feel that when you started this transition in away from that kind of strict Americana style that you were able to express new things that you couldn't quite access? Oh, everything. Everything. And I mean, and that is my own limitation. I mean, mm-hmm. people can express. I just saw a Gerf Morlick show. We were uh-huh. on the road and he, he was uh, at the earlier show that we played. Um, and... Uh, he can express anything, you know? (laughs) So there you go with the acoustic guitar. But I had reached my own limit at that point. Um, And once you start getting all these effects and you've got these Moog synthesizers that Willie's playing, and it just, it opens up this whole almost like space universe. Mm -hmm. And within that space universe, you can sort of lay your ideas down. Just gives you gives you more diversity. Where, it's where so much depth. From. I yeah. think of it as this really sort of three dimensional sound that's being created, and within that, you can kind of place. I'm moving my arms all around here. You won't be able to see. But <laughs> it works can, great for this medium. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really good with this media, but in this, uh, you can really see the, yeah. the depth, and you can put your ideas down in a different way, almost. Well, and you can feel those dimensions on the new record. You really, in case you, in case you need someone to tell you that. Thank you. You can really feel the dimensions on the new record, uh, especially you know the the title track. Yeah. 
to me is is such a great way to open the album because you really do get pulled in and you feel just kind of the the space surrounding you and yeah. um, you know there were moments where I was like this is very flaming lipsy in that you know it's it's it, it borders on the psychedelic right um, so so throughout the new album you really seem to touch on so many different genres dangerously I think I, <laughs> it's I, very risky it, but but it works it works it just you know, does <laughs> for, for me I heard moments where there's there's country influence going in there you know the psychedelic like I said you obviously pull your operatic training in there when you went into it, did you know you wanted to do a concept album or did it kind of just happen? We really wanted to pull these themes together. And that's something I'd been thinking about for this. So mm-hmm. Willie and I had been playing for about three and a half, maybe four years at this point together. And um, at first it was kind of like my music plus drums. And then as we kind of evolved, it became much more a co-write and a co-project. And all of a sudden he's writing all these guitar riffs and he's singing all these parts, which he would never admit to. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, and uh, it really just started to come together when we started doing the film scores. That's when I realized that this stuff could be tied together. Because so much of a film score is sort of ambient noise. It's yeah. getting you from part A to part B. Um, and so it doesn't have to just be 12 songs. Sure. So we almost went into the studio maybe about two years ago. And um, I'm so glad we didn't because the songs so weren't there. Mm-hmm. And then when we went on tour and we, we cut a bunch of them that just clearly weren't moving. You know, you can just really tell sure, after yeah. a couple Test nights. Test them on stage a couple nights. Yeah, you, you know get a couple of those blank it. looks and you right. think like, okay, well, that All one's right. done. That one's done. Um, so when we when we started, when we planned our studio time for this June, or last, last June, I guess 2016, mm-hmm. Whole Different World, that's when I wrote the last few pieces, like the instrumental piece and that song "Burn for I, You," which is our I single. I love the instrumental. Thank you. I'm I'm really proud of that. I, I, man, I, did I work I actually on that. I actually wrote a note on it that I said I said last exit is is one of my favorite parts of the record. Oh, thank you so much. So. I didn't really know what to think. I'd never done that before, and I I just felt so strongly that that needed to be there uh, as this sort of drone. Somewhere between joyous and funeral. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's got it's got this fantastic tension on it that, yeah. that I really really liked. It, it worked. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> it's nice to hear it because you know you never know, and it doesn't work for everyone. That that sure. is clear too. Sure, so yeah. That's, but that's good, I think. Yeah, you yeah. You know, everyone. and it, and it's one of the fascinating things that I really like about the record is that the music tells as much of a story as the lyrics do in many points, and and. Um, because it came after the film scores then, I think that's why, at least for me, it has such a cinematic feel to it. Yeah. Those film scores really changed my, kind of rocked my world. And I, I would advise anyone, you know, you can just get an old movie and, and score just, it. Just rescore it. You can it. just do it. Yeah. I mean, we, we were hired to do it, which was extra nice. But uh-huh. um, <laughs> I was telling a friend of mine like that, just try it. It's so interesting. And it gives you such a concept of, a lot of times there's not really much going on in the background. Yeah. It's just maybe like a little bit of a Moog synthesizer. Something like that. Gotta so. love the Moog. Just, God, do I just, love the Moog. <laughs> and, and the fact that it's become such an underused instrument just makes no sense to me. Yeah, I mean, the great thing about Willie, if if you see us live, is that he's playing the Minotaur pedals with his left foot and yeah. he's drumming with the rest. This is really happening all in, in real time. And then he'll kind of do all the filter sweeps and the LFOs and all that stuff that I'm just on the edge of understanding. Sure. Um, he does it all at once. Wow. He's really got that's quite that's, the brain. I, I love that. Um, so, so other than, you know, last exit, do you have a favorite 
lyrical I know they're all like your children do you have a do you have a favorite <laughs> lyrical or musical I part do, of this record you know I have to say my two other favorite songs are the lonely cry of space and time uh-huh. because those lyrics came like all at once in this big just little little universal gift which I get about once every four years when the muse decides to show up the muse showed up yeah, yeah I wish she'd come around again sometime. And it, you know it's never on like a relaxing Saturday afternoon that the muse shows oh, up. oh no never. no she comes in times of, of, of great tension yeah I think. or like 350 in the morning when yeah. you have to be somewhere at five. Yeah, no, I, but that one I really just, that one just came to me all at once and I think it's this, I love it because it's really just a love song to science mm-hmm. and it's a, just about the beauty of how people are spending our tax dollars creating, you know, learning about creation. Like yeah. What an awesome use of tax yeah, dollars. Oh, it's, 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 you know. Mm. And then my other favorite song is If You Were the Sun mm-hmm. um, which is from the film score and just sort of this operatic piece. It was originally written as kind of like a, almost like American songbook jazz piece. And then, and that was the beginning of the film. And then at the end, it came back over all these synthesizers when she's this woman in the fall of the House of Ushers rising from the dead and she's zombieing over and you don't really know what's going on. And we brought the song back over, um, over this really, really intricate layer of synthesizers and organ. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that's the one. <laughs> it works. So, so the title track that you love. Um, is was that what inspired the whole record then? That tied it all together. Okay. Yeah, you know, it it just it's you kind of have to have a title, I think, yeah, sometimes. Sure. Um, and once once I had that title, I had this concept of how how to weave them together: mm-hmm. love, loneliness, politics, death and destruction, and hope, 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 hope. So I hope, really hope hope. It is <laughs> it is a tough word to get behind in 2017. Ooh, yeah. But yeah. we're doing it. You know, we're here. We're here. We're here. We are. We're listening. I mean, exactly. I hate to quote myself, but I really mean that in that song. Mm-hmm. We're here. And, you know, I personally and some people feel differently. I hate the term rock opera. <laughs> I think it's cliche. And mm-hmm. I think almost every time it's used, it's used completely incorrectly because it doesn't define it. Where when I was listening to this, I said, you know what? But you can reverse it because I feel this is more operatic rock. It's operatic rock. Yeah. yeah. I think Tommy is a rock opera. I'll, I'll let that one be out there. But, you know, as much as I absolutely adore Queen, right. they really like to throw the term at pretty much everything that band ever right, did. Right, right. It's theatrical rock and roll. Right, of and course. And it's amazing. And it's some of the best music ever made. So with operatic rock. Right. Is... is is that the new genre you're going to try and... It's, I mean, it's this genre that I think a lot of this record falls into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I am very uh, unclear as to what future writing will sound like. Nothing has presented itself to me yet. Mm-hmm. And I want to be very careful of trying not to make it, you know, because I think the operatic rock is super cool and I think yeah. it's got a great place. But I think if, if it's faked... If it's forced because I feel like I have to, it's going to suck. Right. So, so whatever <laughs> comes next is going to come next. Yeah, we'll see what comes next. But it's it's really fun. It's very very freeing. It's amazing to sing these like you know two octave above middle C notes. Sure. In the middle of a bar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's very incongruous, and I think people are really kind of, I don't know if they like it all the time, but they're definitely listen. <laughs> well, and, and I think it it, it can shift the song in such wonderful ways like on burn for you where you know you you kind of switch the feeling of it about halfway through it really it's a bit hyperbole but it really takes the song to the net to another level yeah and 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 it kind of hammers home that's a sort of a heavy song yeah i think that the heavy vocals are are helpful for that yeah you know and and for me on this record you know i I, and for people who haven't heard it yet I, i like that it really seems to have this tension like i said running throughout the whole thing and there's there's this darkness but it's not heavy 
because you've got cool cool moments like um on uh it was it wedding vow no it was it was actually it was meteor uh, mm. the the bounce it's got that really cool bounce to it yeah that's those wah, wah, yeah. wah kind of oh. I forget the word mogi thing yeah so <laughs> so did these songs come in any particular order or were you at a point in the record you're like man we need a song that feels or sounds like this that's that's a great question um they they, they did not really come like that well actually no I did write some at the end basically meteor was the first song that Willie and I wrote that we kind of looked at each other and thought like Maybe we are a band. This is a thing. Yeah, maybe this is a thing. Uh Because, you know, at the beginning, it's just like, I hire you, you learn my songs, and... Um, and then that's that. Right. But that one, I think he kind of perked up a little, you know. I mean, he had just been coming off the road with Jamie Lydell. So okay. it was like, you know, he's, he'd been out. Yeah. So here I am, like, I have this, this song for you. Check you know, it out. Check it's it cool. out. <laughs> um, so I think that that, that that song really kind of made the band. Uh-huh. Um, so that's, you know, whatever else happens, that's like a pretty important song for us. Um, and then I think uh, Follow Me was also left over from when we were working with a guy named J.D. Foster. It okay. was our previous project. Mm-hmm. Bass player and producer. Really wicked guy. And then they and then they kind of came after that, sort of one after the other, either through the film scores, mostly through the film scores. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, yeah, I wanted just a few more tie-togethers, and that's when I wrote Burn For You, which is sort of a reworking of a song from one of the earlier films, but the okay. lyrics just weren't holding together for me, and Last Exit, and um, yeah, I think that's sort of how it came to be. But we toured about half of it, and about mm-hmm. half of them we'd never performed until last week, wow. so yeah, it was really fun. <laughs> and, you know, and you're like, okay, cool, people do like oh, this. Oh, they like okay, it. Okay, <laughs> good. Whew. All right, we're safe. We feel very confident. You yeah. know, I don't always go into this feeling that confident, but this, I, I really felt like, well, I did what I can do. Uh-huh. You know, people can like it or not, but I did what I can do. Is you know, and and you like it. And that's like that's it. what we call artistic integrity, yeah. which is sometimes a little bit lost in 2017. Uh, you know, I was just thinking like I was just doing an interview, one of these sort of written interviews and yeah. I was thinking about you know, and you have to be really careful as a musician not to just rip apart other genres. It's not sure. it's not a healthy thing to do. But now I really believe is not the time for Starbucks soundtracks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now is the time for anger and passion and noise and yeah. and you know and it, it, now is the time for some meat in meat. music some yeah. meat in music because it doesn't have to be loud because folk music in itself you know you look back to Woody Guthrie right. is you know some of the most revolutionary music you're ever going to find very true you know and I, I grew up on punk rock and punk rock is just loud folk music right. it's music of the people right um, but yeah you know I, I, I see it a lot and it's not to slam pop music because pop music will always exist but you know where is the Where's the rage against the machine? I, I need some rage. Yeah. yeah. And honestly, actually, I'm finding a, I'm, I'm a voice teacher is how I sort of pay all these bills, uh-huh. of which there are many. Um, and I'm actually finding a lot of inspiration in the pop music that I teach to the kids. There's some great tunes by, well, I don't think that, I don't know who wrote them, but that's that, those groups. Sure. Super groups, the Norwegian performers. groups. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, there's a lot of really cool stuff that I've picked up. In fact, mm-hmm. Meteor was very inspired by having taught so much pop music. So there's really a lot of good stuff out there, but I just feel like the, you know, it needs to, it, things need to get a little edgier. It's time. Now yeah, is yeah. the time. There's, it's a good time for anger it's a really in music. Good time. And there's, there are a few mediums better to express anger right. than music. I mean, right. And, there, and there's enough to be angry about right now. Right. I mean, the list is long. I mean, thankfully we still have this park yeah. for now. Um, so then, you know, kind of dovetailing off of that, you are an independent musician to the point where you release your own music, you know, you you are your label and things like that. In the past 10 years, 
things have changed pretty drastically. How have you had to change how you go about things as an independent musician? Well, that's a that's a good question. I um, I got in 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 the early aughts, right yeah. at the very 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 tail end of there being really any kind of of support and and muscle behind it. And we did we we sold several thousand of this one record, mm-hmm. which you know today would just basically not happen. But ever since then, it's it's been pretty similar for me. I've mm-hmm. been at the level the whole time where the loss of of sales has not hit me as hard uh-huh. because my numbers were never that high to begin with. You know, I sell records when I connect with people as individuals on an airplane. I've sold records to people I've met on airplanes. <laughs> I've, you know, I'll sell records to the people I meet in, in small bars and venues. And, um, so it's, it's, it's already just, you can't get more intimate than this. Yeah. I hope I don't have to get more intimate No, and, and, and I think it's the best time. I actually use that word all the time when I say, you know, I have trouble going to arena shows anymore and it's not because I'm pretentious because I'm a little bit but (laughs) you know I can't connect with an artist you know it's one of the things I I dig is is having that closeness with the performer to just get it and feel it I think one of the hardest things for me and from all of my comrades out there Mm -hmm. is that the mid to small to mid-sized venue is sort of a is is a dying breed yeah and you know I am, my music is too loud for your average coffee shop, yep. which is fine. I'm proud of that. Right. Happy and to be that. Yeah, I'm very happy to be that because I, I don't really need that. I don't need the espresso machine in my ear yeah. anymore. Um, but I'm not, you know, ready for the theaters. I, you know, please, I'd, I would hop on at any point of to course. the theaters. But just being honest here. Um, and so there's there's a little bit of a gap. You know, New York still has some. We're playing Barbez tonight, one of my all-time right. favorite yeah. venues. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Seattle... We just played the triple door. That's so. There's some oh, great yeah. venues out there, um, but it's really hard, and you're very, very, very much scraping by. You know, everybody I know, almost at every level, I know some people at, at much higher levels mm-hmm. than me who are still just barely scraping by. So yeah, because it's like either you're playing the coffee shop or here's our five thousand seater. Yeah, the five thousand seater is really not that helpful for yeah. most musicians, even yeah. ones that you would think would be famous enough it's it's very hard to sell that many yeah. tickets and it's just that it's that it's that gap between the rich and poor it's mm-hmm. it's everywhere it's at every level of society and it's absolutely in the musical world so you're selling out arenas or you're well and and you know and even at arenas you know i'm not i'm not paying 60 bucks to see most bands I'm right just, i'm just not willing to do that i'd rather right. see the five or the ten because it's gonna be a better show the one arena show that i missed was the game of thrones Okay. Musical, yeah. I would have paid sixty bucks to see that. <laughs> I'm not saying I won't say pay sixty for anyone. Um, duh, sure. duh, duh, duh. I yeah. get it. You, you know, know it. I mean, look the the uh, the Legend of Zelda Symphonic Tour played up the street from my apartment, and they sold out the Barclays Center. Yeah, you I know. mean, th- I think that I mean I, I make light of it, but there actually is a lot of. Um, it's actually kind of sad that the, the tours that are selling at are all associated with video yeah, games TV, or, video or games. television. Yeah. But, um, you know, people know about it. Right. It's, it's, how, it's how it's out there. Now, granted, you know, Tom Petty is still going to sell out everywhere. But, you know. I'd, I'd go see him in Game of Thrones totally. That'd be an interesting double bill. <laughs> Absolutely. Who, who plays first is the question. <laughs> so, um, with with... But as an independent artist, things like Spotify and streaming music, do you feel that that is an aid to you or? I've kind of given up the fight there. I, you know, I don't, I don't rage against it anymore. I think that, you know, anyone hearing my music is great. You Mm. know, sometimes when I see the amount of plays, I think like that, now that's great. Now, how do I get those people to know me? 
How do I get them to look a little further? Right, come to the show. Come to the show, buy or you know, shoot me an email, or buy uh-huh. buy a T-shirt, or something like that. Because you know, if I could multiply plays times <laughs> one ticket, right? You know, I'd be I'd, I wouldn't be rich, but I would be paying my band a little more. Yeah, you know, which I would kill to do. Yeah. So I don't I don't I don't fight it anymore. I think that times do change. You know, we're not in, we're not in print media, thank God. So you know, uh, yeah. Um, but I do think that if you like an artist, find their website and buy their CD after you've found them on Spotify. I don't, I don't think Spotify is the reason that this stuff has happened. I mean, no. this is, you know, they're, 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 they're doing their thing. They're here in town providing jobs. You know, I'm, it's hard to, you know, rage against that. Mm-hmm. We just have to find other routes too. Well, thank you for coming by. Thank you so much. And, and thank you for making the record. It is wonderful and so important right now. Thank you. And, uh, We will see you on the road. That's right. Cool. My thanks again to Anna for sitting down to chat. You can find her on the internet at AnnaCoogan.com and Twitter and Facebook of the same name. The Lonely Cry of Space and Time is out now, and you really need to check it out because it's so damn good. She's also going to be on tour throughout May and June, and I'm sure more dates later in the year, so check her website out and go catch a show. Now, before we wrap the episode, I do, of course, have your weekly Ear Fuel listening assignment. For those of you new to the podcast, each week I assign an album to listen to, in full, beginning to end, without any distractions or interruptions. It stems from the fact that these days, music has been largely relegated to a background task. You're at work, you're at the gym, you're driving, whatever. And this assignment is about taking some time each week to consciously listen to music for the sake of music alone. This week, since I talked about it at the top of the show, your assignment is Jimi Hendrix's Voodoo Child. Now, I suggest you check out the entire Electric Ladyland album, but this 15 minutes is an absolute necessity for music fans across the board. I think I gave it enough context earlier, so run, do not walk, your ears to the nearest copy of Voodoo Child and enjoy. Thank me later. So that's all for this week. If Anna Coogan is coming to your town, be sure to check her out and grab the album at AnnaCoogan.com. As always, the podcast is available in the iTunes and Google Play stores, along with at GetEarFuel.com. That is your weekly Ear Fuel. Share and enjoy. <laughs>